Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! You better stop it! You got it! J-Star, I am excited about this interview. We've got J- Dr. Jeremy Koenig talking about actionable genetics, like the, the real takeaway things that you can do. Now, just to, just to sum this all up, remember, Ready State is about trying to affect all of the available psychological and physiologic sort of biologic availability. So how much can you control with better information? And that's what this conversation is about today. You know, our friend Jeremy is a total badass. He was a varsity track and field athlete. He has his PhD in biochemistry. And And that's that's in college. Yeah, sorry, that was in college. PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. He did his postdoc training in genetics. He was a professor of nutrigenomics. He has 10 years experience coaching professional athletes. Um, But his latest mission is with his company, Athletagen, and he is really trying to bring the delivery and application of genetics to everyone. I met him originally at Altus, which is an Olympic track and field development center in Phoenix. He trained there, was one of their athletes actually, and really realized that there was some, some of his work could immediately transfer over and improve the lives and performance of the athletes that he was training with and working with. And we're also working with him now to make the Mobility Wad Athletogen DNA kit. The, the problem with this feels like far science, right? Is that how do you integrate it into your life? And how do we take this really radical set of informations and and actually make it actionable and palatable so that it can change the behaviors of your day-to-day life? And this conversation, I think, gets into that. We love this interview, and we think it's a great follow-up to our interview with Dr. Lee. We talked really broadly with him about the science of genetics. And here with Jeremy, we really focus on his experience in building a business and being on the front lines of bringing genetics to actual people. Enjoy, everyone. So we have, we have no agenda other than there's this nascent thing happening in world of human self-actualization and it sounds and smells like genetics and genomics. Mm. And what's interesting is having these, these views around, you know, and something for you to talk about today is, you know, when the, whoever said was, it's going to cost a lot of money or it's not practicable or you don't know how to use this or that this Did is a chance. Did you say we, practicable? Yeah. <laughs> It's an attorney that's, phrase I learned. That's great accident. You may have learned that from someone. <laughs> there's this there's this ride uh, we used to do, and you'd ride along this really sketchy cliff. In Tiburon? In Tiburon, and it would say, the sign said, bicyclists, like, stay right as... As, as like, far right as practicable. Which is such a And we a would great, always go by and be like, what douchey attorney wrote that? Practicable. Because it means the exact same thing as practical. But, but it makes you sound more smart. Practical. So practical. Anyway, we digress. I'm just going to dive in because I think Kelly was getting started on it. But uh, can you help us define a few of the terms uh, we use in genetics? There's a lot of similar terms, genetic testing, genetic screening, genomics. What are the differences and which of those is athletogen involved in? Oh, wow. What a great question. Right, right to the heart. And, you know, that's like... Uh... That's one that I always correct people with, and, and no one's explicitly asked me the way that you just did. Um, very insightful. Because you said the words like genetic genetic testing or genetic screen, uh, and it's like, geez, with, with, with that definition, it, it, it implies that you could pass or fail. Uh, and so I, I really, really don't um, you know, condone that language uh, here. We, we look, at more, look at it more as, um, you know, genetic insights, genetic information. So, so when you look at the screen, like, I mean, the, the, the origins there are, you know, more clinical, it's a diagnosis, you know, do I have the autosomal dominant trait for Huntington's disease? That's a genetic test, genetic screen. I got screened for Huntington's, I'm negative or I'm positive. Um, highly clinical in nature. And, uh, when you start to move more into like genomics, like genomic sciences, uh, you know, instead of genetics, for example, where you're looking at, you know, genes, one gene, genomics encompasses uh, much more than, than the individual genes, but how those genes act in concert and not just at the gene level, but at the, you know, conformational structure, tertiary structure, you know, organization and packing of chromosomes, um, access to, you know, highly transcribable reason, regions and, you know, things like, um, 
you know, DNA methylation. And, and so it's, it's much more all encompassing, if you will, uh, to, to speak about, um, uh, the human genome in terms of genomics, uh, because it is, uh, much more, uh, call it, I want to call it, um, academic in, in, in nature, but we're, we're seeing that actually change. Like we're seeing that, Oh, well, you know, whole genome sequencing is, is the next thing that we're moving towards where, you know, previously when we, we look at, you know, running a particular assay, like back in the old days, it was you know, PCR uh, as a you know, molecular biology uh, technique that, you know, quite frankly, we leverage that to, to sequence the human genome, but we, we'd PCR, we'd amplify polymerase chain reaction specific regions, of the DNA so we could quantify it at a high enough level so that we could actually, you know, detect, um, the difference with our, you know, human instruments. Um, but, uh, then of course the, the technology advanced and we looked at, um, DNA microarrays where now you have, um, regions like these, 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 um, oligo sequence regions that are essentially there floating in single strand DNA, of course, is double stranded and it anneals with you know, hydrogen bonds. And so, just by, by different, um, you know, temperature control, you have, you know, different annealing, uh, and you're able to now detect polymorphisms, um, you know, essentially based on these, these microarray technologies now. So, so instead of doing one, you know, genetic screen, um, for a diagnosis, now you can do, geez, I think it's up to, you know, 4 million on some chips, for example. And then the whole genome sequencing is that's that now we're sequencing the entire, uh, human genome. And, and I think, I, this is, this context is important, so I hope you. I'm not rambling too much. Um, the one, one thing that I want to bring it back to is, you know, it was billions of dollars, I think it was over three billion dollars to sequence our first human genome, and you're talking from a, a you know, handful of people. I think it's 12 or 16 people, uh, and now we're talking about whole genome sequencing for, you know, I, I've seen it as low as 399 dollars. Um, you know, microarray analysis for a fraction of that. Uh, so. We've gotten to the point where we've just drastically decreased the um, the cost of, of of creating this data, and the irony of it is, wow, well, we have all this data, so so now what do we do with it? And then we come back full circle to the question, you know, is it an assay? Is it an, is it a test? Is it a screen? Um, and that's why you know when you're looking at there's so much of this this information, like it's information, it's insight, like we. We need everybody to kind of join our charge and, and um, you know, discover what this information means. So, sorry, Juliet, I hope that wasn't too long-winded and you guys got to jump in and stop me if I, if I go too long. Not at no, all. I, not at all. This is important. Yeah. And what's really interesting about hearing you as scientists, because you and I are friends, I know you even as an athlete, to, to hear you as a scientist is interesting because you live in this deep science world, deep experiential, you know, scientific process, big, big pharma world, for lack of a better word, that has been your kind of your past. And what's interesting for me is this, the duality you keep in your head of saying, how is this actually useful to a coach? How is this useful to an athlete? So you have this unlimited view of the potential of this research, the potential of this information. And then you have the clinical practical, you know, pragmatic side of you is like, well, does it really matter? Is, does this change what I actually do and how I talk to my athletes? How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a, that's a really, you, you've, you, you guys are really nailing it today. I mean, like, that's like the question of my life, right? Like I, I get to the, the point here where, you know, got, got so deep in, inside the academic, um, process, for example, spent, you know, quite a bit of time in industry as well. And, and I just, I really ask myself, like, am I making people's lives better? Uh, you know, I look at papers I've published and I'm like, oh, well, that's cool. That's been cited a few hundred times. It's like, okay, yeah, but by whom and for what? It's like, keeping in mind also, by the way, very important, very important point is the public is funding this research. Um, and I'm just like, well, when I go out and talk to friends at parties, not that I'm a big party here, but you know, get, get the analogy, um, <laughs> um, like, well, oh, wow. It's like, you know, like kind of gla glaze goes over their eyes. And I'm just like, God, I, I got to do better at, um, at making this information accessible. Cause this is like, you know, th this is, this is like at our core. It's like, Hey, it's our DNA. It's, it's what makes us, you know, who we are. It's like 3.8 billion years in the making of a genetic code, human technology. And, 
nobody really understands it. I mean, percentage wise, if you look at the entire planet and I just think, Hey, what a great opportunity. So, um, so Kelly, to answer your question directly, like, how do you, how do you reconcile that? I think, um, I think maybe the first thing is to maybe not see them as, as two, two different things. I mean, absolutely. Uh, and, and say, well, you know, is this dichotomy real? Um, you know, I, I think certainly like clinical application of things, you're, you're dealing with a different, um, you know, population segment and, uh, you, you have to honor that. And, you know, from a medical practitioner's point of view, I mean, it's, Hey, do, do no harm. Um, and you know, by the way, same applies to the coach. So you can actually start to look at all the, you know, kind of common, um, moral and ethical obligations that, um, that both sides have. And I like to start at that common place. And, you know, from the performance side of things, it's like, you know, how do I do every single thing? How do I consider every variable at the right time and make the best decision to, you know, get that podium finish? You know, in a clinical setting, it's, you know, much more, it's much more urgent. We're talking about life and death. And so, you know, the, I don't want to say that the standards are, are, are different. They're, they're not. I think though the consequences are, are certainly amplified in a clinical setting. Uh, and so there is, um, a necessary amount of, you know, standardization, um, you know, the right, you know, governing bodies in place to, to ensure best practices. Now the connection to, to, to athletes, um, will say, how do you, you know, how do you reconcile that information? How do you get, um, important information, um, that's inside every athlete, uh, and, and get it to them and get it, you know, to the point where the coach and the athlete can talk about this, um, and, and, uh, do so in a way, way that's helpful because if you, you know, consider, so the extreme, uh, example, I mean, you, you overwhelm them with too much data or you give them data that, you know, uh, some of it is you call it preliminary research. And by the way, research is called research for a reason. It's because you're going to research. Um, and, uh, you know, like, like how do you convey that? How do you convey the, the relevance, uh, of the current state of the literature and that even though something may be preliminary, Ooh, geez, there's all of these other data points around this athlete that they know about themselves and the coach knows about them. And so, Oh, well now, you know, we're kind of at this, you know, Tim, Tim Ferriss area where it's like, well, the N equals one experiment is actually really quite important. Um, so that, that's an important place mm -hmm. in your experience. Have you seen this emerging, almost emergent field of actual genomics affect the athletes that you've worked with? Have you yeah. seen a one-to-one -one correlation between I have more information about myself, mm -hmm. my coach has more information about me, and I can perform better? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, like the, the first answer to that question is that, you know, philosophically, the athletes and the coaches have bought in. And, um, you know, is is the state of research where it could be? No, it's not. Um, but are there use cases where people are making informed decisions? Yes, there are. Uh, so you know, with like, that, though, let me ask you this. Is, hmm. it, are we at a place, or is this going to be part, a necessary part of the conversation? In 10 years, if you, if you cast forward, if a coach isn't looking at underlying tendencies, let's say genetic possibilities, are we going to be missing a piece of the puzzle or are there just too many other important factors that, that matter more than understanding what my potentiation is of my genetics? Or sorry, yeah. if I could just add, can you, could you get the same information? You know, Dr. Lee said, for example, that he gets almost all this information from doing a long medical personal history with people. Um, and often the genetics just confirms what he's learned in that history. Yep. I'm just... So two, so two, two questions there. Um, I just want to make sure I hit them both. So uh, the, the first one is, you know, will this be commonplace in ten years? And um, you know, I, I, I often frame, you know, the opposite side of the, the equation because people look at me like, oh, well, you're biased. You know, you founded and you run a genetics company, so of course you're going to say yes. So I ask myself, I say, okay, do I? Is it true? that genetics is useless and provides absolutely no information. And I strongly disagree with that statement. And so then I now start to argue, 
towards the thing that Kelly's talking about. Will this be commonplace in 10 years? And I've gotten to the point where I actually tell people, if your GP isn't looking at your genetic data five years from now, get a new GP, um, GP right? Get a new general practitioner as your, as your MD. Now, the, the second question there was, oh, well, you know, we can, we can just, um, you know, do a, a com- complete, uh, you know, medical history of your life. And um, fair point. But there's one variable that that includes or requires, and that is time. So it's going to be a combination of both those things. So my point is, okay, well, I'm, I'm 80 years old and I've lived all my life and I've had all of my responses to all the different stressors and I've, you know, uh, performed, uh, you know, uh, X, Y, Z according to ABC and yep, the genetics confirms that. So I think the idea with like digital health and, and um, information is that we start to collect information like that and then when you start to head down, um, you know, a risk uh, pathway, you get the information before um, the incident. Now, in the case of an athlete, um, I think it's always really important to bring this back to very plain conversation um, because we can sensationalize this too easily. You know, if I know, for example, that you know I have a various or a var- um, a variant of uh, you know collagen, for example, that makes me more susceptible to an Achilles tendon rupture, does that mean I'm going to rupture my Achilles tendon? No. And is the research preliminary? Um, yes, to an extent, but it is one of the more well-researched markers. Now, if I'm coaching an athlete who is, I don't know, a long jumper, um, and they start to present, and Kelly, you can speak on the, you know, the kind of symptoms that would, you know, foreshadow um, a potentially catastrophic career-ending injury. If they start to present that, and we know their genetics, I mean, it's like you as a coach can, you know, I think feel much more informed um, with making what may seem like a minor tweak or change in, the, in a program, but I think we all know that there's no one big thing that, that, that brings that podium finish. It's just those, those um, you know, I think infinite number of permutations that we have to be ready to consider and act in good faith and make the, big, the best decision collaboratively. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's... Um, do, you th- do you think that that's what you would say, describe when you and your team say, this is we are white coat black art. Is that what you mean by that? I, I, there is there is a combination of of um, of art and science to this. I, I think there is to to anything. Um, you look at, at any um, any great scientist; they're they're extremely creative. There's a huge um, artistic component to whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, and so I like like when you say, "Oh well, it's I don't want to I don't want to say, oh well, it's whatever I want to paint on the canvas." When when I think of you know, art and science, I think of, let's not lose sight of the creative process. Let's not lose, let's not exclude the individual, um, who has the data that's static and let's not exclude their real life experiences, um, from adding very important context, um, that nobody else could know except that person. Okay. Jeremy, Juliet, I'd like to go way back in time to this very basic question. What is athletogen? Where are you located? How big is your staff? Who do you work with? What yeah. is the product? If you could just tell us more about Athletogen, that'd be great. Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so if I'm going to be honest, I think I've been thinking, you did say way back. So uh, I, I've been thinking about Athletogen probably since I was 15. My, uh, my, my mother was, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Um, you know, and you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, the favorite and I wanted to be your savior. And so here I am, this 15 year old kid who is like, you know, reading up on all the anti-inflammation diets and, you know, talking about icosanoid balance and coming to understand the role of genetics. And I was just like, gosh, like it's nature nurture. It's how these things come together. We got to manage your stress. I know there's the genetic influence and here's how we can combat that. And, um, you know, the reality is, uh, you know, the, the sport thing, that was something that I, always, I just loved. It was, it was call it my, my creative outlet. I, I love to move. That's where I get ideas from. And, um, the, I think the, it led me to a place where I was like, well, yeah, there, there's sport performance, but, um, uh, every single cellular division is a, I mean, that's a, that's a performance. That's a beautiful concerted event. Um, that requires efficacy of DNA replication and partition, partitioning of all the cellular material. Like that stuff just, yeah, blows me away. Like that's a performance. And so athletogen really, uh, at our core, uh, to really distill the message, it's really about transforming human potential into human performance. And, uh, you know, certainly focused on athletes and, you know, why, why are we focused on athletes? Because, 
Um, you know, athletes, they, to them, one one hundredth of a second matters. They have to be perfect. And guess what? That forces us to be perfect. Uh, those coaches that we worked at with Altis, you know, I started working with them two years ago. They weren't believers. And I was like, perfect. Tell me why not? Um, let's do this together. And so where that's our guiding star. Well, give us, give us some examples of how athletogen data, which, which let me just set up for is one is that you've you can capture the same information that 23andMe can capture. But a lot of the nuance of this is the interpretation of mm. actionable behavior. Like, mm. I see these things and it means this to me as a coach or to me, this to me as a user. Can you mm. give us some examples of things yep. or behaviors that have changed as a function of this high-performance Olympic coaching staff and athletes seeing this information? Yeah. So what's interesting is if you think about how like the discoveries of genetics happen in the first place, I mean, um, let's, let's say for the sake of argument, we're doing, um, you know, a single gene study and we, we know something about the biochemistry of that gene and we ask, okay, you know, here's cases versus controls. And in this example, I'm going to see that individuals with this variant of this gene that's responsible for B12 absorption, um, they have lower serum B12 levels compared to the super healthy normal controls. And there's a polymorphism. Ergo, individuals with this variant are likely to have lower serum B12. Okay, great. How does that help me as an athlete? You know, consider there could be potentially millions of these kinds of things. So really what we did is in working with the athletes is combined the monitoring information. So things that coaches have been looking at for, you know, century or more. Uh, and it doesn't sound, you know, really sizzly, but it's actually really important. And that's the questions that come back to you. How do you feel? What's your energy level status on a scale of one to 10? How did you sleep? What's your mood? What's your stress? What's your soreness? And actually having a distribution of how that athlete reports, measuring that against um, the stress that they are um, exposed to, which is what training is, by the way. It, it is a you know informed stress to bring about an adaptation. And so then if a particular stress causes an athlete to say chronically report low energy levels, um, you know, what we found, what our hypothesis was, well, what do we know about metabolism? And oh, lo and behold, it turns out that athletes that chronically report like this um, could have a predisposition for lower serum B12 or lower iron. And so now in the past where athletes are like, oh, I'm so tired, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not responding well, the coach is like, oh, maybe you need to sleep more, maybe the training load's too high. And, um, you know, now, now it's like, okay, here's like a more informed data point to inform the discussion. So the, 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 the very question that you're asking um, Kelly is, is the one that we have to be very careful about how we answer because when, when we look, well, well how exactly does this help athletes? And, and I want to, I'll come back to the, you know, the most sophisticated answer I, I've ever heard from, a, from anyone. And that's, you know, of course the legend Dan path is, well, it depends. Um, so the point is, is that there are potentially an infinite number of permutations like that. And so the value and therefore, you know, our prioritization of, you know, what research that we're doing has to come back to, you know, what are the athletes measuring already? Um, because I'll tell you a secret, there's, there's, uh, and I don't mean to brussel the feathers of, you know, any health professional or otherwise, but there's no such thing as cancer genetics. There's no such thing as the genetics of Alzheimer's disease or multiple sclerosis. And I don't say that facetiously because I have people that I know that are afflicted with those things. But those are observations. Those are states that we see in humanity that are a response to a stress. And we call the outcome cancer. And then we call the genes associated with that cancer genes. But let's not forget, um, the molecular mechanisms at play. And so um, that is really what uh, drives our innovation. So yeah, there's the, the B12 example. Um, we found, for example, you know, sleep, obviously a big one, hot, hot topic uh, in the wearable space right now. Um, you know, athletes that um, have particular variants of, of uh, various genes associated with adaptation to time change, for example, um, you know, are negatively or adversely affected from uh, traveling and jet lag. And so some athletes may, may require, you know, more recovery in between traveling, for example. So these aren't really, you know, crazy, you know, sexy things, but they, they matter. Um, and, uh, you know, essentially, we've, we've looked at, um, you know, over, over 200 that we've, um, you know, known genetic markers that we've validated in this fashion. And, um, you know, when it comes to working with our, our customers, we actually don't call them customers, we call them partners because, uh, they are people who are willing to innovate with us. And, uh, so the, the, the idea here, the philosophy is that the, 
the more we make something useful for people, the more they innovate with us and, and, uh, and everybody wins because it's about knowledge transfer. So when someone gets a genetic test, that was awesome, by the way, when someone gets a genetic test, uh, well, I'm remiss to say the words genetic test now, when someone comes to you to get genetic information, tell mm. us about the process, sort of step by step. Um, Kelly and I have obviously gone through it with you and through a couple of other sources, but it would be great to know what the process is. Do you send it mm -hmm. to the lab? You know, yep. just sort of walk us through that. And I know what the end result looks like, but I'd love to hear, you know, sure. what what happens on your end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, from our side, uh, essentially we have um, a saliva collection kit uh, where, you know, there's no sexy way of saying this. You, you spit and uh, the cheek cells in your saliva. Uh, are, Which is are actually what... harder than it seems, by the way, somehow psychologically when uh, as, a, as a user. When you're uh, when you're up for it, somehow your mouth has gone like desert dry. But that's it. Well, well, Juliet, oh. Juliet is also confusing with the time where we were doing a some other little <laughs> blood test, oh, yeah. and you oh. had Juliet needed two drops of blood, but she was like, "No, they said fill up to this line," and I actually had to get a needle out and draw Juliet's blood and pull out like five mLs of blood, and I was like, "This no, is insane! This he is." Did. He drew my blood like in our kitchen. <laughs> oh, I was like, I just don't think this is scalable. So with uh, like a yeah. with like a pin from our uh, no no no, no it, was, it wasn't. I was one of your B twelve shots. Sorry, Jeremy, we went off. <laughs> the idea though is please get back. It to wasn't the, that difficult to spit, to your spit in the tube, babe. <laughs> okay, so no blood. Uh, point one. Um, but yeah, so so saliva in the uh, saliva cells. That's uh, you know where the if you will the treasure chest of your your genome is in those those cells and and. Um, you know that uh, sample goes back to the lab for analysis, and, it, and it's actually, it, actually, by the way, guys, I will just quick side note with with the messing up the extraction process. Uh, I spent I think ten years on the bench, and I messed it up. So I was like, oh my god, if I'm gonna mess this up, <laughs> like we got to make this really <laughs> simple for people. Um, but anyway, it goes it goes back to the lab, and it's and it's really a, a simple washing process, right? Because um, you know, this, your cells are this, you know, phospholipid bilayer. So you just, you're putting in like, you know, soap essentially and, you know, ethanol to stabilize the DNA and then, you know, various spinning and then you pull out uh, centrifugation, you pull out the DNA and um, you essentially um, subject it to the DNA micro reanalysis that um, we spoke about. And we actually have a partnership with Affymetrics. They're based in uh, San Francisco, recently acquired by Thermo Fisher, I believe. But uh, first, first ever clinically di uh, uh, clinically diagnostic uh, microarray. Um, worked with them a lot during 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 grad school, actually. So anyway, so we use you know tried and true uh, biotechnological practices, and um, then you know that information is uh, you know taken from the array and transformed into you know your digital code a g c and t and uh we know which which um polymorphisms which site on your um in your dna that those came from and then so we translate that information uh to what the literature is saying and so yeah there's we talked about a collagen marker for um increased risk of achilles tendon rupture or you know a predisposition to have lower serum b12 uh and so effectively that information you know, comes back to you through the um, the bioinformatic algorithm, and most most um, recently, uh, now on your mobile app to an application that we released called um, Iris, and um, the first stages of that release uh, considers now the obviously the athlete monitoring, uh, and your your my DNA site is um, or my DNA you know called genetic magazine is still there. Um, but what we're working on now is is interlacing the uh, genetic information with uh, your reporting trends in the future. So no longer is it, you know, here are thousands and thousands of genetic markers. It's like, hey, here's how these markers stack up to the things that you're reporting um, with, with today. Now's a good time to take a quick break and talk about a development that's happened since we recorded this. We were such fans of Athletogen and what Jeremy was doing that we have now launched an Athletogen Mobility Wad kit with the company Athletogen, and it is great. Basically, you get a kit, you send your spit in just like you would with 23andMe or Ancestry.com, and you get back this really comprehensive, um, detailed information about what your genes are telling you and specific recommendations from Mobility Wad about how to handle them. Yeah, and what's more important is that we've taken 75 traits that are specific around 
actionable sort of intelligible information about your training experience and your susceptibility to really common training problems like tendon injuries and back injuries and what vitamins maybe you should be taking because you don't absorb them very well. And it's what cool. diet you should be on yeah, to absolutely. train optimally and how you should sleep and how you recover and whether or not you're a worrier or a warrior. So we had did this a couple of years ago and it radically changed our markers or changed our experience of our, our day-to-day training so much that we even had our kids tested. Let's head back to the show. You know, one of the things I really appreciated on your site when I got my own genetic information was how you have, you can sort of dive deep if you are interested into the scientific research mm. and that you rate the scientific research sort of, I think you have like an A to F yep. scale based on the weight of the, the evidence. Um, yep. For me, I I really enjoyed that, and it gave me some really good insight into sort of how much value to place on certain tests. Do other people care about that? Do most people just want to look at the high level? You know, I have this or that, and go from mm -hmm. there. Or uh, is that is that something people are interested in accessing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Uh, I, I think the simple answer, like with respect to the you know the general population, even the athletes, is. And I made this mistake. No, they don't really care about that. They 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 trust us and they want the answer. Now, that's that's therein lies the problem, um, because like the the reason for you know the extent of reporting and transparency that we pursued was number one, I was a bit of a science geek and I made the mistake thinking, well, if I want to see it, everybody wants to see it, and um, you know the the reality was nobody was reading it, and uh, well, except you. <laughs> so. Uh, um, uh, nerds. So, nerds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've had to rethink uh, how we how we communicate that. But you're right. There, there's it's 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 very important that people understand the context um, of those results because you know we so I think it's A to E actually and 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 so the A standard study is like multiple experiments done on different um, uh, cohorts, different ethnicity, different labs, uh, highly reproducible, consistent findings. Uh, and then you have like preliminary research that's been done, you know, one time on a small group of people and it's just like, well, that's information. Um, it's not clinical. We're not going to diagnose it. We're not going to prescribe anything, but it's like, Hey, cool. Like, don't you want to know this about yourself? Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I remember when I was uh, scrolling through it, I saw just, and I'll be honest, I didn't actually read all the studies. I mostly just read the titles, but you can learn a lot because they're like, 500 word titles for all these scientific studies. But there was one that I thought was really interesting and then I saw that it was based on like a study of 10 women in Northern Russia. Exactly. You know, and um, then I thought, okay, well maybe that you know isn't actually gonna be that applicable to me. Yeah. But to me, that was really helpful. Yeah. You know, I don't know what else you do. Do you have a pop-up that says, take this one with a grain of salt? I don't know, you know I don't know how you, I don't know how you, uh, you know, make people care about that. I, honestly, I, I think it's shapes and colors. That's what I tell my crew here. I'm like, give me shapes and colors. Make it easy, guys. Make my life better. Um, and the analogy I use, like, hey, do you, do you use um, use Google Maps? Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Okay, I was like, cool. Like, do you know how it works? They're like, no. I was like, but why do you use it? It's like, well, it gets me where I'm going. And I'm like, cool, okay. But if you really wanted to do research, you could find out, you know, how Google came up with their algorithms and then, you know, you see the Google vans driving around and, you know, it, based on people and their mobiles now, we can even estimate where traffic and congestion is. And, well, and you're, bringing you, up, you're bringing up a really good point that, mm -hmm. you know, if we, we get rid of all the technology in sport right now and we look mm -hmm. at trying to change athletes' behaviors, mm -hmm. athletes do things that work and lead to net positive results and tend to reproduce and and be consistent with behaviors that make them better. And they tend to reject or not follow through or not be adherent with behaviors that they don't perceive or experience as making change. And I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's what's gonna be interesting about telling this in the future. This is, it's great that you know it's, it has this wow factor, but you, know, you still have to train hard, you still have to sleep, you still are eating right. But if I can inform my precision around those mm -hmm. buckets and I see a net result, I don't have mm -hmm. to have buy-in because I know this about myself. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point, and and that really comes back to especially where we are uh, in, in in as I said in the stages of innovation. Like maybe we know 0.1 percent of what we could know uh, about the human genome. Now now the question is, are you going to wait? Or are you going to jump in now? And uh, we're not interested in having people jump in early. And to your point, Kelly, like 
if your app, if you can't get your athletes to stop staying out all night drinking and you know eating Big Macs, like you're, I'm sorry, I don't care how good your athletes are, you're not our customer. Um, that's that's really really what it comes down to. It's a it's a very sophisticated and collaborative innovator. What if my genetics prove that I don't need to sleep and I can eat Big Macs <laughs> and still win gold medals? I mean, I think that's you know, and we always talk about a little bit of let's, apolo- let's, apologetics, let's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's let's do the study. Let's give everybody Big Macs and take away sleep and see who wins. <laughs> okay, so so we've been doing a lot of talk about athletes, and uh, I'm a mid 40, 40 some year old woman, former athlete. Although I'm athletic and trained, and that's not true. You still compete, so that makes you. An athlete. I do a little competing here and there, but in like silly stuff. Mm-hmm. If if I were to uh, take an athletogen genetic information screen today, what could I learn about myself? Sure. Uh, so I always find it very difficult to, um, you know, speak to, you know, how I think you could use it because I, I don't I don't know you. I don't know a day in the life of, of, of Juliet. I mean, I can guess knowing Kelly as well as I do what it's like, but I, I can't know for sure. So what I can tell you is this. Um, how do I use it? Uh, so I'm, I'm no longer competing on a world stage, um, but I do know the value of physical fitness, and um, you know it's a big part of big part of my life. I'm I'm training anywhere from you know one to three hours every every day. Uh, some some things that came I came to learn about myself, and you know this actually comes back to your point in talking to you know Dr. Lee is like, well, I could have learned all of that stuff by doing a survey. Um, so right, the survey that I would have answered is okay. Two two uh, torn labrums, um, you know, uh, a, uh, um, meniscus medial meniscus tear. Uh, definitely more of a speed power athlete. Not much of an, an endurance guy uh, on the psychology side. Like definitely the warrior versus warrior. So a lot more mindfulness training that I needed to to understand about myself. Um, but the point is is you know, I monitor my own training every day. I look at training load. I look at what kind of training am I doing and is this setting me up for, for success? And what is success? Like I need to be an, I need to be of service to my team, um, you know, uh, and my customers to, to you. And, and so I have to be healthy. And, and so, you know, I will, as much as I love plyometric work, I'll, I'll, you know, use it at a, as a minimum dose or most minimum effective dose, if you will. Uh, and then I make sure I do enough of the things that I love so I get my fix. So like, you know, a lot of them, you know, kind of heavy, heavy, more, more, um, you know, quick, quick movement. Uh, and although I may not like cardiovascular exercise and I may not, you know, be an 800 or 1500 meter runner, um, there's ways that I can approach my, my cardiovascular training that's a lower impact and actually enjoyable. Um, and then music, even music choice. I'm like, okay, I don't want to be too, sometimes I need to be, no, 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 I don't need to be too amped up. (laughs) So I'm, I'm I'm always finding like, like I got a lot of mindfulness training, a lot of meditation, um, that, uh, that I adhere to. Uh, and, um, you know, I can either wait for a poor performance or I can use, you know, my Iris app to, to remind me before that becomes an issue. And then even, you know, with respect to, to diet, um, you know, the, the high fat you know, paleo thing, like that just does not work for me. And, uh, the genetic says it and the experimentation that I've done on myself does it. So, you know, as hard headed as we can get as, you know, athletes or performers, um, I think what, what Iris does is it allows you pause to say, okay, well, there's all these fads going on, whether it be the new fitness trend or the new diet and say, like, okay, but what about me really? So I think it allows you and it gives you a sacred space to, you know, take a peek inside. Uh, wait, what is it that makes makes Juliet special? And so it has to come back to your goals. Well, and and I'll say uh, as a follow up to that question that I have uh, done my own testing through your platform as well as my children and found a ton of useful information, including a bunch of things that actually really surprised Kelly and I. Um, And I will agree with you from a diet standpoint. I mean, I learned, I tried to be a paleo eater for many years and was always kind of like five pounds fatter than I wanted to be. And Mm. I learned that I really survived better on a higher carb, lower fat diet. And when I learned that from my genetics, I actually felt relieved, like I didn't have to follow follow the trend. But, um, you know, one of the things Kelly learned, actually, that he learned from... uh, working with you is that he is more of an endurance athlete than a power athlete. And he felt like he'd been trying to put a square peg in a round hole his whole life. I thought that was very interesting. We learned some really interesting things about our daughters. 
Uh, so, you know, I'll say I found it very useful. Well, and more importantly, useful in terms of thinking about the behaviors of turning behaviors up or turning them down. Mm-hmm. You know, how much we have one daughter who just needs to sleep like it's her job. And, mm-hmm. and no, now even seeing that there's this trend and then knowing that there's maybe an underpinning to that, that like we weren't crazy. If she doesn't sleep 10 plus hours, you know, she's not the bear. She is a mm-hmm. bear. Right, and there's there's such a difference there, but also seeing that she had sort of poor recoverability, you know, ex, you know, abilities, meant that she needed a little bit more sleep than than Karen, Georgia, who is you know up at five forty five, you know, with gun shooting. You know, the other one that really shocked Kelly and I was that uh, we went into it assuming that he was a warrior and I was a warrior, and it was actually the opposite. Um, so now it's become like a family meme that Kelly's the warrior. <laughs> Look, I have feelings. I need to feel my feelings. It's totally good. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not scared. But you know what is interesting is that, you know, what I really like and appreciate about the applications that you're bringing to a really. Uh, I'm not going to say that every athletic experience is a meta-conscious, meta-aware experience, but in the highest levels, people are, as as Dan Pfaff says. They have PhDs in their sports and their events, right? And they start mm-hmm. to really understand what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, I'd say that that's actually a, a crucial aspect of world-class coaching is talking with the, the athlete and saying, hey, wh- what do you know about your own process? And then is that true? And is there ways to, that we can improve that process? So we don't have to, you know, you shouldn't throw away someone's experience of their life because it's gotten to them to this point. Well, that's a, that's a great point. And, and actually, um, Stuart McMillan, you know, also Alta's coach, uh, performance director, he, uh, shared an article with me and, you know, we were talking extensively about this, like, you know, evidence-based practice and, um, you know, just to quote him specifically, you know, like regrettably evidence-based practice has evolved to ignore the experience of the practitioner, i.e. or coach in this case, uh, and the perspective of the patient, uh, i.e. athlete. So, while we look to, you know, um, academia for, you know, scientific process, uh, standards, you know, getting the right, um, considering the ca- considering and stati- stating the caveats of the research and sharing the right exclusion criteria and being very clear about the conclusions and being careful about media sensational, sensationalization of, of, of findings. We see these all the time, right? Oh, well, red wine's good for your heart and so is dark chocolate and, you know, anything cholesterol-free is good and so now are ruffles, potato chips. So... The, 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 um, I see, I see a problem here where, uh, I think Stuart McGillan summarizes it really nice, nicely is like, Hey, like, let's not ignore experience. Let's, let's involve obviously the evidence. Let's take, um, scientific theory. Um, but the practice is the experience component. And, and I think both things need to be considered, but, you know, to, to talk about your experiences, um, you know, that, that you and Juliet had or that that I had, um, the risk I think, you know, from our side is, you know, we have to ensure that people don't interpret that, Hey, you can expect the exact same outcome. Okay. Discover whether or not you should eat paleo when you, when you distill it down to that and the person isn't as sophisticated as you guys are, for example, you know, haven't had years and years of, you know, trial and error and practice and, um, you know, running a performance facility, um, the outcome, it could be bad. Why? Um, because the experience that that individual brings, not because there's a lack of evidence, but it's that, you know, the context of the evidence isn't properly understood and that person's life experience are, are um, not a good match. Well, this is really an important point because, Lee, anyone we talk to, you, about genetic potential or potentiation, mm-hmm. it's just because my genes say one thing, they don't necessarily express that 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 aspect of the genetic, genomic, whatever, sequence, piece, behavior, outcome, 100% mm-hmm. of the time, through epigenetics, through behavior, through will of training, people end up sometimes, you know, not necessarily beating, being 100% the book that they appear to be. And I think that really leads to some interesting conversations and questions. For example, you know, how is, can an athlete's genetics be used against them? You know, in mm-hmm. genetic screening, are coaches going or an organization, are they going to be able to take that information and, and screen an athlete out? Hey, you have high tendon rehab injury rates potential. You have high disc, 
you know, herniation potential, you have high Achilles turn, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, maybe I, I make a decision or is that going to be part of the process of the future where an athlete is, has lost a genetic lottery and, and I have a knock against me because my genes say one thing, even though my history says another thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, that, that's an interesting one. And, and, um, you know, a couple of things come to mind when, when I hear that question. And the first one is, is this a genetic, is this a problem with genetics or genetic science, or is this just a problem with people? Um, and, um, in, in, in that case, I, I say that's a problem with people, um, putting the emphasis on the wrong variables and, um, you know, yeah, not, not getting the context. Yeah. And, and so, so, um, you, you know, now, now to be clear, like, you know, there, there's some, you know, very important, um, now these are tests or screens that, you know, athletes, are, um, are subjected to like in the NCAA, for example, like, you know, sickle cell trait or, you know, is there, you know, sudden, this sudden athlete death syndrome, like those, those are very serious things that, that, um, you know, don't fall into the scope of, of what it is we do. Uh, so when, when you start to think about, however, for example, you know, if you were to look at an athlete and say, oh, well, you know, we're, we're, we're going to, we're going to, you know, exclude you from our roster because you have an increased risk of, you know, tendon injury. Well, geez, Tommy John, the very guy who the surgical procedure or injury has been named after, um, it was because of him embracing that injury and being so diligent about rehab and actually finally revolutionizing a, a solution, um, you know, to, to the injury. Now, I don't know, you know, his, his actual, you know, genetic risk or, or not, but, um, he, he had missing internal rotation shoulder syndrome with poor warm up and cool down practices and icing. <laughs> that is the official term. Yeah. That um, was like robotic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I guess, I guess the point is, um, you know, I would counter the argument with, wow, this athlete has been so proactive about ensuring the longevity of their career. Like that's the kind of culture I want on my team and think about the kind of value, um, that, you know, your veteran athletes or, you know, second, third, fourth year athletes are, are delivering to the rookies coming in. It's like, Hey, this is a standard. We're, we're proactive in everything. And, um, you know, an athlete that has been so proactive to, you know, consider all of these, you know, external forms of training. Um, you know, you look at a guy like Andy O'Brien and Sidney Crosby, like they've revolutionized how um, hockey players are training now. Why? Because um, they took the groupthink model and survival of the fittest and throw 100 eggs at the wall and maybe a dozen don't break. Um, and they got into very specialized training. Hey, what does this body need? What does Sidney Crosby's body need? Or where does he want to work? Um, and gosh, like I've seen, I mean, when he was, um, you know, going, going through injury problems, the guy's still out on the track, finding new angles, finding new space. Can I move at this space? How low can I get? And then going in and working that out on the ice and just falling until he finds his edge. How, how low can I go? So I, I think you got to know your edge so you, 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 you can learn what you can push through, what you need to honor. And, and I think having an athlete with that kind of character is, is invaluable to an organization. But in my mind, and um, maybe this is a separate conversation, uh, the athlete is first. And um, organizations need to exist to serve the athlete because if they do, that's the thing that leads to the best performance and that's better for everybody. But if you start to exclude um, because you can play the numbers game, um, it's gonna get old fast and you're gonna have, you know, rebel, you're gonna have strikes. You know, that's just really all there is to it. So but we're not thinking. We're not thinking things through, I guess is my point. Well, no, with, I think this has really interesting implications because this is as a potential tool to improve an athlete. So let's say you know you have likelihood of tendon, more likelihood of tendon injury. It means that we do some bodybuilding. We have to be a little bit more warmed up. You have to just do the things that we know you need to do anyway mm -hmm. and keep an eye on a little bit closer eye. And subsequently, there's no, there's no issue. So ultimately, you know, what we're going to see, though, is that players associations are already starting to look at getting rid of you know data capturing you know that they that they are trying to exclude certain behavior or certain data metrics because they feel like there's a loss of privacy and that the coaching institutions are not going to respect them that they're already taking the air so is this one of those things where you know, it's going to be owned by the athlete and shared judiciously or is it going to oh, be yeah. something that you know it should be the low side controls always with the athlete 
Oh, a- absolutely with, with the athlete. Um, I mean, I don't know if you guys have, uh, you know, got on Iris yet, but um, if you want to join any group uh, that's on there, whether it be the Altus group or the Athletogen group or whatever, um, there is informed consent every time you, you join um, a particular training group and, um, you know, with the highest uh, data security standards in place. So, I mean, that was the first thing we did. Um, but I'll tell you this, like, like, um, pro organizations are, are not our market, um, for, for simply that reason. I mean, I think, I don't think that, um, universally there's a, there's a standard or an ethical practice that protects the athlete. Uh, and and so, you know, we've talked to, you know, a lot of pro organizations and, um, we just come back to this simple fact, like, um, if we don't see this protecting the athlete, if we don't see this, um, you know, serving them and serving the individual and ultimately serving humanity, we're, we're not in. And that's where I say, like, we're at this, this, this position, this, we have this luxury of, you know, choosing our customers. And, uh, and that's a very, uh, I think, important distinction to make, uh, is that we have very strict criteria in terms of who it is that we, that we choose to work with. So I read that you interviewed hundreds of coaches and athletes to learn how to build a product with user empathy in mind. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about why and what you learned from that? Yeah, user, user empathy is, it's the thing. I mean, I mean, I'm not talking sympathy, I mean like empathy, like I have been where you are, um, you know, literally. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, obviously I spent years as an athlete. I, I spent, um, more than 10 years as a, as a high performance coach to professional athletes as well. Uh, but I had my opinions and they were one, and I knew this was a problem that needed to get solved that, that IE, um, you know, how do I get the best data, um, that I can use to help, my, help my athlete. Um, you know, rather than, oh, wait four years, trial and error. And geez, I made that mistake. Gosh, that was, that was that was stupid and it wasn't just stupid. It was like that, that athlete's career, uh, potentially, thankfully never that happened to me. Never did that happen to me personally. But, um, you know, I needed to confirm that hey, this was a thing and how far along are the best coaches in the world and how sophisticated are they? And, and you know, what solutions are they using today? And, you, you know, if we are going to make a, an application and a technology, like how do we make it so it doesn't disrupt the athlete's life? So, we, we went and followed around these athletes. We did the day in, day in the life of. We, we got to the point where, like, hey, we know, you know that majority of people take their phones to the bathroom. Like, it was that intimate. Um, we know that the, some of the coaches have two or three jobs. Uh, we know that there are certain aspects of accessibility and um, uh, the, the, to the data and reporting that need to be available in real time so that you know, coaches can coach. Coaches don't want to analyze the data. Um, they, they will at the end of the week or they will at the end of a training cycle or they will add, um, you know, kind of a performance review, but they want to coach and they want to coach with confidence and they want to be making the right decisions. And so that's where, you know, we sent, um, we sent a team, um, down to, to Phoenix, Arizona. We're just like, we're just on the track. What do athletes talk about? What do they joke about? Where do they go? What do they eat? Um, you know, how do, how do we truly help them? One of the things that I, Uh, A trend that I see emerging between the conversations we've had so far is that this genetic information is really important and should be viewed in context of another data set. My subjective experience, a subjective examination, a blood test. And what I hear you saying is that, hey, we have have all this, this insight into the potentiation of a human being but it's got to match with behavior and it's got to match with subjective experience and outcomes. Do you always think that you think that as long as we keep this dyad, this, this conjoining of, of multiple relationships where I'm seeing a relationship back and forth and I'm, I'm sort of reaffirming what I think I understand, you know, is that just confirmation bias or is that, is, is that really ultimately how best that this information is used? It's used in conjunction with real world subjective experience, right? It's not, it's not, yeah, it's a piece of a puzzle. It's not just blah, this is a hundred percent what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. It's easy. um, So I want to move on beyond beyond ancestry.com. You know what I mean? It's, it's really cool to know where I came from, but how does that impact the day-to-day choices that I make? I mean, do I need to watch three episodes of Black Sails or only two because I should go to bed early? 
Um, yeah. Can't tell you that from a genetic test. Um, <laughs> no, no if I have a good taste in, in pirate dramas? Well, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I guess really the bottom line is I, I'm hearing that, you know, what you're seeing is, you know, the, the physician using genetics is important, but they, they haven't, they haven't forget, they haven't forgotten everything that they've used to be a good physician to that point, right? Their diagnosis, objective. And on the other side, you're saying that, hey, this is a potential tool that makes really good athletes understand more about themselves and helps coaches have better, you know, make better decisions about the training loads and recovery from those training loads for their athletes. So it's a really useful tool, a filter, for, for lack of a better word, than maybe just standalone. It's, it's less beneficial or less useful to me as a standalone app if I, if I don't have something else to compare it to and don't have a way of understanding how it impacts my behavior or potential behavior. Yeah, um, I, I think you said that. You said it very well, uh, and, and it, it really the the nice thing about you know delivering well, essentially, like remember we started this conversation, um, you know, about how I, I felt you know unfulfilled in what I was doing as an academic. Like, uh, geez, people aren't seeing this information; they're not part of the process. Um, you know, you, you got to like you know show people the dots before you can connect the dots. And and that's where you know, TM, you have, TM. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There there is um, you know a tendency. Oh, this clinical study was done, and um, you know the conclusion is you know the example I gave you was um, you know you can live longer if you eat dark chocolate. Well, who ate the dark dark chocolate? Oh, was was it rats in the end? Was it only male rats? And where did they live? And what were they doing? And so um, by taking this information, um, I, I mean, I think that I do want to honor that point. Like there, there is a risk of confirmational bias. Like, oh, well, I'm going to pick and choose and oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but that's where if you connect people with like a health professional, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I mean, consider the other, other side of the equation. The, the point is, is that this, is, um, this, is, this was always meant to be a discussion starter um, and uh, with grander visions of it becoming a collaboration where I think anybody with DNA um, you know, can in some form and in some way be, be a geneticist. Why did I have to go to, 50, for, to school for 15 years to understand my own, you know, my DNA? You know, like do, do like, uh, I mean, there, there are some things that um, I think uh, should be very uh, basic uh, start, starting point of education. I mean, and, you know, some would say this is the point of life anyway, you know, know, that, know thyself. Um, so, so I think, um, by including people in the dialogue already, I, I, I think the differences of opinions that we see, um, as long as they're constructed, by the way, uh, is, is a great opportunity to collaborate in in um, you know genomic research like we've we've never seen before. We've never we've never seen you know now we can connect people all over the world. We can you can imagine you know mobilizing um, a global cohort of individuals uh, to drive discovery. And, and I mean, hey, guess what? That, that in the past is the biggest pain point for any academic. Um, we're, or, seeing, we're seeing enough with enough data, right? Enough, <laughs> enough pattern recognition yeah. to make good yeah. inductive reasoning. Well, I'll tell you yeah. one thing that's for sure is that it's going to take at least 10 years for us to see how we're shaping our daughters based on their genetic behavior. You know, Caroline obviously is going to be a decathlete, not a power <laughs> athlete. And uh, or an 800 meter runner, and we'll see. We'll see how I'm, the choices I make and how she's in therapy talking do a about. Up in 10 years that's about right. That's how right. Kelly and I have, <laughs> have destroyed our our, our, our children. Well, well, Jeremy, thank you so much, man. This is you know it's really interesting to see where the rubber hits the road, and I really appreciate that you are always standing in in both lanes of traffic. You know, what yeah. what are the ethics of this? What's the business of this? Where is this going morally? Well, you know, what are the implications of the deep science for just the science sake, you know, because I know I know that's your heart. I mean, just we should know how the universe works, even if it doesn't help my day to day. But also, you know, you're a user and you fight for the users. You you go hand in hand with those track athletes. You've been on the, the pointy end of the spear in terms of training volume and national, you know, national titles. And, you know, you understand what what is at stake for an athlete working at the limits of their potential. So it's it's really fun to see your evolution. And I can't see where this this conversation conversation goes in another five years, AJ. Yeah, well, thank you. And, and, and you know, I, I agree. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, um, huge pleasure for, for me as well. Honored to be invited um, along. And, and um, I will say this to listeners, like, 
you know, the, the, the greatest tragedy would be, um, that, uh, you know, we don't, uh, embrace an opportunity to understand ourselves. And, um, you know, each person has, has, has the right to make their own judgment and, and voice, uh, their opinion. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really exciting time. We, we love the people that we're working with and, uh, I get to talk to people like you and that's now part of my job. So I feel very lucky. Fantastic. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Okay. Thanks guys. Thanks for covering so much time, boy. We love you. Okay. My pleasure. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to The Ready State. If you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under MobilityWOD. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it. You got it. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is the co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it! You got it!